0: The Guardian
3: Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast. I'm Richard Lee.
4: I'm Claire Armistead. And I'm
5: Sean Kane.
3: This week, we look at books that connect us to the earth and sky. Haida Ausgiersdottir turned down a modelling career to take over her parents' remote farm in Iceland and found true beauty in the nature around her and her fight to protect it.
2: It's uh, basically the only thing you can do that's really effective, that is to put yourself somewhere where you get the information and you can have some influence. So it was no choice. actually. Just, if I wanted to do my best, I had to be there. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
3: But first we hear from Sinead Gleeson, the latest in a line of new Irish essayists, including Emily Pine and Ian Mullaney, who was on the books podcast a couple of weeks back. Gleeson's debut collection, Constellations, is a kind of fragmentary autobiography exploring love, loss, motherhood and illness. You've become a bit of an evangelist for this, Claire. How did you discover it?
4: Well, I had heard about it going back um, several months when the catalogues came up, and I thought it sounded interesting, but I hadn't actually got round to reading it. And I happened to be in Dublin on the week of the launch. And um, I was on other business, and somebody I was on this other business with said, <laughs> Hey, there's this really happening launch coming up tonight at Hodges Figgis Bookshop, which is very, very, it's supposed to be the oldest bookshop in the world. So obviously, I was going to go along. The with place that. to be. <laughs> <laughs> and there was the whole of literary Dublin, basically, in this bookshop. And I, I bought Constellations then and there, and I golloped it down in my hotel room overnight. And ever since that, I have been going on and on about it. And I've been thinking about why it's made such an impression on me, and at the risk of sounding Ponsy, I'd say. I'd say that actually, it's not. Um, it's not a, a memoir or an autobiography. It's it's meditations in the Aha. Marcus Aurelius sense. The
3: Marcus Aurelius, the, the Roman emperor.
4: Yeah, well, Marcus Aurelius was a Roman emperor, but he was he was obviously the, the original Stoic or the most famous Stoic. And, and um, I think that Sinead Gleason is a new Stoic. By which I mean not only that she has suffered horrible things and is very stoical about them, but that what she is doing is finding a new way of thinking about the world in the post-religion era. So she is a brought up a good Catholic girl. She has lost her religion. And that this is how the constellations comes in. What are the things that we look to to give us a sense of perspective on humanity and suffering the mortal condition? So when she came in, I asked her to start with a reading that touched me particularly deeply and I think will illustrate what I'm trying to say. Music is the reason
1: my children used to be obsessed with death, but only death in the abstract sense, when it was something that happened to famous people, not those we love, until Terry or my best friend's young husband. It transpired that their interest in the subject was not about the ending of a life, but of someone not being here anymore they began to ask constant questions about people from history, from music, from the films we watched together. They found it reassuring if someone they'd just discovered was still somewhere in the world, inhaling and exhaling, travelling, working, writing songs. Is Elvis dead? Is Willy Wonka dead? Is Michael Jackson dead? Is Mary Robinson dead? Is Stevie Wonder dead? Is Bill Clinton dead? Is the guy who sang Video Kill the Radio Star dead? Is David Bowie dead? Until January 2016, I was able to say with breezy relief that Bowie, in all his heterochromic glory, was still with us. They were very sad when he was not. Conversations about religion are complicated. My husband and I are not religious. Our children are not baptised and are fine with this, but religion is part of the school curriculum. We answer their questions, teach them to be respectful of believers and do not sway their opinion. One day, they may believe and we will support that. Not long after my son had started school, he declared out of nowhere with the Nietzschean fervour, I think God is an Egypt. And they ask about heaven. I have no knowledge of a place I don't believe in. Instead, I talk about the night sky, swapping theology for astronomy. I present them with stars in place of stations of the cross. On my phone, there's a star app, which we point at the sky in search of planets and celestial bodies. The city lights frequently obscure the view, But the stars always show up on this screen, technology undeterred by cloud cover. We tilt and roll the app looking for the Big Dipper, the Seven Sisters, the flattened W of Cassiopeia. With the little I know, I talk of supernovas and quasars. In Italy, on a mountaintop, the four of us watch a blood moon rise with Mars hovering close by. They'll grow out of this soon, of thinking their parents have all the answers. They will realise the size of the globe begin to dream of all the places they'll want to see. The stars will be here long after us, I tell them, wherever we may go. I cannot speak for heaven.
4: See, that sends shivers down my <laughs> spine a bit. <laughs> Did you know, to say this is long-awaited, this collection is if indeed it is a collection a constellation is an understatement I happened to be in Dublin on the night of the launch and it was like the whole of Ireland (laughs) literary Ireland, was packed into the upstairs room of a bookshop tell us about about your project
1: Well, I've always been interested in in books and writing uh, and my whole career has been based on books, interviewing people and reviewing books and reading books. And I always assumed that I would write fiction and I, I do write fiction. I'm attempting to write a novel at the moment, but for a long time I knew there were things I wanted to say and I didn't feel that... Fiction was necessarily the, f- the form that I wanted to do it in. And I was asked a long time ago by a publisher to write some pieces about myself that I think they were very much looking for a straightforward memoir. And I wrote the pieces and the publisher liked them, but they wanted to focus on all the kind of darker aspects of this book. W- of which there are many. There, there are many, aspects. yeah, to do with illness and bad health and terrible doctors. And I didn't want to write a book that was all about those things or all about myself. I wanted a book to be much more of a miscellany and more broader and I wanted it to be a book that would look at big issues and, and the broader world and not just at aspects of my own life. So I figured that the essay I think is a very mercurial kind of form. that You can do an awful lot with the essays. You can talk about aspects of your own life but you can talk about any other subject from politics and sport to theology and art. Uh, and so I kind of attempt to, I sort of stitched the th- two things together, the, the broader world and And elements of my own life to sort of create this book,
4: which I hope deals with a lot of different subjects. You call it essays, Mm. but but it includes poetry, doesn't it? In fact, you could say one of the essays is a series of poems.
1: Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And again, I think this is because for a long time we we've been very rigid and and obsessed with categorization of calling. This is only a short story. This is only a novel. Uh, And lots of the writers I like are quite interested in, in hybrid kind of styles. People like Anne Boyer. I, even Anne Carson who's a poet but lots of those poems don't necessarily look like poems they look like essays to me and um, Maggie Nelson obviously would be a huge touchstone for me and I some of the stories again I, I'm interested in the idea of form and the one that's tw- the 20 stories about the McGill pain index I decided to take a medical structure of the language of words 77 words in 20 groups and use those 20 groups to talk about 20 medical experiences it was also I could be quite playful and some of the more comic elements of the book I think are in that section as well and um, so for me people ask about the form but I think I think form and content can be sometimes the same thing how you tell a story is important as the words you choose
4: how you visually represent it on the page is I think almost as important as the things you're actually saying absolutely but also you're dealing some of the things you're dealing with are almost beyond language I mean pain by definition is sort of beyond language isn't it very uh, much hence so. the the formulation of the, the McGill pain index where they attempt to create a, a way of indexing Feelings that can't be put into words otherwise.
1: Yeah, you're spot on, and I and I think that is also that if you and I both had you know a stomach ache at the moment, I would describe it differently to you. Pain is, is such an individualistic, almost existential thing, in that even twenty people with a broken leg are not going to have the same break. So the way they articulate that, the the pain caused by that break is not going to be the same. And then it comes down to the words that you choose. And and I, I've spoken about this a lot. I'm quite fascinated by medical language. It has its own etymology, its own musicality, and yet it's a very alienating sort of language because only the people people who are trained in it tend to know it so we, we all euphemise and use kind of slangy words and different words for the body um, but I'm really interested in the words that doctors use and so much of it comes from mythology and, and Greek and uh, and Roman languages and I've always been interested I mean I own a medical dictionary that I sort of nerdily dip into from time to time but I think yeah pain is quite is a very inexpressible thing and I know that there are doctors who ask people to draw their pain rather than to actually write it down because it, it is such an It's so difficult to articulate sometimes to tell people how you feel. And if you don't have the the language or or the the education or you don't speak English as a first language and you're trying to speak to another doctor, it can be really difficult. So I'm fascinated about how how we talk about our pain, how we represent it, uh, how we
4: acknowledge it. Just going back to the story that first attracted the publishers to you as a potential memoirist, you've you've had a long history of bad health going back to your very early teens. T- tell us a little bit about that, just to contextualise it.
1: Yeah, that's the first piece. It was published by Granta and again I think it, it takes some time, I think any kind of memoir writing is, can take some distance for you to actually think about how you want, what you want to say and what aspects of it and I talk about the um, American writer Vivian Gornick a lot who talks that says that the memoirs tells all and the essayist selects and I certainly didn't want to put every aspect of, of my life into this book so I started with between the ages of 13 and 17 I had a mystery hip ailment which took a while to diagnose and essentially in those four years I missed three months of school every year through having Explorative surgery, or having lots of actual surgery to fix the problem, being put into medical casts, so being bedbound, immobile, being in hospital. And those kind of are very formative, crucial years when you're, you're forming your friendships, you're trying to figure out who you are, you're becoming an, an adult. And I spent a lot of it away from from other people. And at the time, it, I, I really did feel like a huge loss that I was missing out on a lot of things. And but at the same time, that's when I found reading. So again, pre Internet, when you've got a lot of time on your hands and you're stuck in a, a hospital bed, I dove into books and I think abs- my whole life, who I am as a person, what I did for my, you know, my whole career is very much rooted in those those formative years of becoming obsessed with books and I gobbled you know a couple of books a day I just couldn't get enough of reading and I'm still like that but they were very tough and isolating years and I talk about a later experience in the book of of leukemia which was in my late 20s but as terrifying as that was in a strange weird way the years of hospital because hospitals are very frightening places and I talk about the geography and psychogeography of hospitals in the book I think that leukemia years were awful but I was prepared for hospital I was, so I was versed in the language I knew how it worked I know when they come and wake you up in the morning I know they come and take your temperature every so often so to be I was familiar and it was, so it wasn't I think it would have been even more frightening than it was had I not had those years behind me so weirdly they sort of those two experiences talk to each
4: other a couple of decades apart Another thing that this illness is, as a child really confronted you with was religious belief mm. in Ireland which is quite different to religious belief in England. Anywhere in else? <laughs> well sorry, <laughs> where I am and you have this account of you, a trip to Lourdes where Where you say my crutches are the equivalent of a playoff clean sheet, so you got onto the bus because you were on crutches and you could have your friend with you.
1: Yeah, exactly. There was there was a demand. It's part of that hippie. Say they were they were having a trip to France and everyone wanted to go because we were going to Paris, not because we were going to Lourdes. And you had to put your name in an envelope and there was a huge demand and they were having a raffle and they decided on the day we're going to have a raffle and a very special person is going to pull out the tickets and I just thought, oh no, I know it's me, the cripple girl is going to get to go to Lourdes and I knew and it was so up I went and I was allowed to bring my friend as a bonus. So but I went and again. Ireland of the 1980s is an incredibly a uh, distant place from where it is now, uh, socially, politically, thankfully. And the whole country was believed everything that the church said, and I was very pious, and I believed that if I went to Lourdes with my bad bones, that I would be cured, and I really thought I was going to find a miracle there until I got there and I saw how you know it's it's almost a strangely capitalistic place with all the souvenirs and all the money that that pours into it uh, from pilgrims, uh, and I, I think before the end of the trip I realized I'm not going to get better, and I didn't. Two weeks later, it was, and you weren't uh, going to be
4: you weren't going to be a Catholic. I wasn't. Catholic yeah, either. that
1: was that was my big sort of lapse in faith. That was where I just thought, yeah, this is I haven't had any help there's been no divine intervention for me here um and maybe i'm being too uh expected too much of uh the god that the catholic people believe in but i was very fervent and i really thought something was going to change for me and it didn't so but then of course also i was a teenager then and you slowly start to realize the history of what has happened to women in ireland because of the catholic church and you're you have an awakening about how the church has been pretty terrible to women in ireland so very quickly i i was sort of um radicalised against the church in many ways as a lot of young women in Ireland did when they started to realise what their mothers and grandmothers had gone through uh, in the 20th century and beyond in
4: Ireland. Now that's the political aspect of mm. it but there is also a symbolic aspect of it and it's to do with blood yeah. uh, obviously the, the Eucharist is, is a sort of blood rite yeah. and you have a sort of whole section on blood and that links in with the use of blood in contemporary performance yeah. and you mentioned particularly a performer called Franco B yeah, one, one, of the, one of the artists who uses his own blood so the, it's one of the constellations is this route through which connects your bodily experience with all this religious symbolism, with contemporary performance.
1: Yeah I discovered his work and I, he had come to Dublin to do a group show in the, the science gallery in Dublin and I, he was doing some work on hearts and I went back and found all this video performance work. A lot of that had actually taken place in London. Some was in the Tate where he's walking a runway catwalk and bleeding through tiny needles in his arms. There's other pieces where he's lying on a table and you don't know if it's a mortuary slab or it's an, you know, a dinner table or an operating table and I don't think he does those performances anymore because I, you can literally imagine how draining you know, m- more than just literally they are and I I'm interested in Christian Clifford, who's done before. She's she's used paint on men, which is then used as male paintbrushes, if you like. And I think that blood is it's I mean, it's a life force in religion. I mean, when you talk about the, you know, that you physically in transubstantiation, you're meant to drink the blood of Christ when, when priests drink wine at mass. And I think that, you know, it's been involved in, in sorcery and magic and voodoo. And there's all these multiple connections, more than any other kind of bodily fluid, I think, to me. Uh, so I, again, that's the longest essay in the book. And it's connected also to my experiences of leukemia, my interest in DNA. And I th- I guess this, for me, the idea of blood is something that is spiritual and magic. But I've had also an awful lot of other people's blood inserted into my, my body. I've had, a, you know, hundreds of units of, of blood transfusions. And there is something, it is literally a life-saving sort of thing. But it, it, it's, I mean, it's been used so much in art not just as performance but I find it a endlessly fascinating subject which is why I love Rose George's recent book uh, which is all about the, the history of blood and the politics of blood and the cost of blood so yeah it's a, it's a, that's I think it's why it's the longest essay in the book It's I find it fascinating
4: This is also a hymn to motherhood in a way to your experiences because that was the the thing that might not have been able to happen when you had all these terrible things happening health-wise.
1: Yeah, they're they're combined in that between the hip problems. I always knew if I was going to have children, it would be C sections because I'd been had my hip surgically fused for years. And when I was pregnant with my daughter, halfway through the pregnancy, was a horrifying. Pregnancy, I, my hip just literally fell apart, and then I was I knew I'd have to get a replacement. I was made to wait a year by a doctor who which has often happened to me, didn't believe my story or believe the pain or believe that I needed that operation, which I, I absolutely did. And I, there's, you know, I have ongoing issues because of being left so long. But with the leukemia, I was I had gotten married six months to the day and I would had a leg clot, which became a lung clot, which became a leukemia diagnosis. And it was literally two and a half years of an awful lot of treatment and had been told and warned, this is probably not going to happen for you. Your body has just been pounded and, and pummeled. And I'd also thought about, you know, the idea of so many things that I've had a lot of medical interventions, So I decided I probably wouldn't try and do things like IVF because I had had enough of hospitals. And miraculously, I managed to, to have two beautiful children who have been life changing and wonderful. And I think that I between still being alive and my body still actually enduring and having those two children, I, I constantly remind myself that I'm very, very lucky because a lot of what I talk about in the book is about what constitutes a good life, what constitutes a long life, a happy life. And I think often we focus on the minutiae and small things and not the bigger issues. And our bodies are so complex and so fragile and nobody knows what's in store, what, what the, their body's fate will, will ultimately be. And we don't know if it's next week or 20 years. So I think that's something to constantly remind ourselves because uh, I do because of all the things that have happened to mine but, I, but I'm still here.
4: Just to end, I was wondering if you might read one of the poems of the twenty stories based on the McGill Pain Index. For, for sure, us.
1: absolutely. And speaking of pregnancy, I think this section is called "It's called hot, burning, scalding, searing," which is one of the, the, the twenty groups. Uh, so I wrote about heartburn in pregnancy. It arrives like a stranger in town, an unfamiliar car cruising the street as mothers watch through curtains. This experience is commonplace for many, but new to me. On TV, there are ads for gloopy pink medicines. Actors clutch throats, frowning, performing discomfort. My father's stomach is complex, in synchronicity with my life. When my mother was pregnant with my brother, his ulcer perforated. He worked near a hospital and the proximity meant he didn't die. But it left a phantom in his gut that has haunted his life. Heat rises up, alimentary canal as fire hazard, not phoenix. Words challenge the inferno but turn to ash in my throat. Wanted, one hydrant, hose me down. Jaws chew chalky tablets and it is quenched as if I'd fought it with the river. When I am not pregnant, I resolve to eat jalapenos straight from the jar.
4: Well, if you think that sounded painful, you should hear the one about the lung clot.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, from heartburn to heartlands, Haider here joins us after this.
0: The Voice Lab from The Guardian.
1: Hey, do you ever want a quick catch up on the news headlines first thing in the morning while you're making breakfast or getting dressed? Well, if you have a Google Assistant or Google Home, we can help with that. The Guardian briefing is an experiment from The Voice Lab, which in under two minutes brings you up to speed with what you
4: need to know about the day's top stories. We'll make sure you don't miss a thing. To listen at any time, just say, Hey Google, speak to
1: the Guardian briefing.
3: Haida Ausgier's, Dottier's father used to tell her she would take over the family sheep farm as soon as she found a husband to look after the land. But when her father was diagnosed with cancer in 2004, she took over the farm single handed and has been running it ever since. So, Sean, what was it about her story that intrigued you so much?
5: Well uh, it was sold to me when the book was first announced as a supermodel turned sheep farmer (laughs) which I was just like okay hell yes I need to read this and then when I actually did read it it became a much more complex book than I was expecting so it's about this woman called Haida and she was running this sheep farm all by herself and then uh, basically had this run-in with a gas company who wanted to Sort of use part of her land to set up a new plant, and so she uh, decided to take them on. But part of it is basically that she's she's such a character. She's really reluctant to be in the public eye, despite having this past modeling career. But she's also self-described got an awful temper um, and sort of a very very stubborn nature. But she decided she would enter into politics to try and fight this thing. And it sort of becomes like a sort of Erin Brockovich-style tale, but in, in Iceland, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just loved how she came across so much because it's sort of written as if she is almost talking to you over the phone and sort of telling you about her day, which actually was the case because the book is actually written by someone else. It's written by um, a journalist called Stein and Statir And she basically called up Hyder a lot. And Heidi really wasn't interested in having a book written about it, but Steinem sort of promised her that it wouldn't be too personally invasive. And then apparently... <laughs> all about
3: the campaign. Yeah, yeah, like, oh,
5: it's all about this interesting story. She goes, yeah, okay. And then now she says that actually it's far more personal than she would have liked. Um... But anyway, I I just I really liked how she came across as a person. She wasn't who I expected. And she's got all these really interesting complexities to her and very staunchly feminist person. So I really wanted to have her on the show and kind of explain herself in a funny way. So your book, Haida, A Shepherd at the Edge of the World, it's detailing your day-to-day life as a sheep farmer in Iceland, and it's told over the four seasons, and it was a bestseller in Iceland. So nature writing and and books about rural life and farming and the environment are very, very big here at the moment in the UK, and perhaps, perhaps more so among people who live in cities and feel disconnected from nature and perhaps where their food comes from, that sort of thing. Do you find it strange then as a farmer to find that people are interested
2: in your life? Uh, Not that much maybe because I can can feel it that... Yeah, times are changing, of course, and uh, people are starting to think more about where the food comes from and where we are heading and how we are treating the earth. Mm-hmm. So it's natural that people are curious about where their food is made because they're maybe starting to realize it doesn't grow in the store. <laughs> it has to come from some, someone. And it's also good that people are pressing farmers to treat the animals right mm-hmm. and, and to treat the nature right, and that's a good thing. And one of my main courses when I agreed on this book was exactly to try to minimize the gap that has been growing between the people that live in the city in Iceland, even though you're probably smiling because we don't have big cities <laughs> in Iceland. We have only one one city and, and some towns and villages, but uh, it's still a gap between the people who live in the city and the people in the countryside. So I, I wanted to try to... Yeah, to minimise that gap and to clarify to people that doesn't realise what modern farming is about, try to uh, give them a little a little peek into the farmer's life. Well,
5: that's, that's the wonderful thing about it, is I wasn't expecting this book really to be as... Experimental sounds weird, but the way that it's told, it's uh, basically it's as if you're having a conversation with us and we're sort of reading it on the page. And I guess that came naturally with how the book was put together because basically there was a, a journalist called Steinen Siguratotir, totir uh, who got in touch with you and she was interested in your life and suggested that you do this book. I've heard since then that you were surprised by how personal the book was. Turned out, is that is that right that uh, you weren't really expecting this book as it is?
2: Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's quite the way you describe it. Uh, Steinnur Sjordotter is uh, a really famous uh, author in Iceland and and other countries uh, also, and she used to be a journalist in her young years, so she's really good at talking to people, <laughs> <laughs> and she. Had this idea about writing this book after visiting me at my farm, when she heard about this uh, fight that I had against the power plant company. So that was her reason to write the book, and that was also the reason that I said okay to the idea. But I didn't not I did not realize that it was going to be about me so much so so personally because I thought it was just going to be the story of this power plant, but then. She said to me that, of course, that would never work. She could write that story in one article, Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, not a whole book. So we would get anyone to read about the fight, and we would have to give them some person to read about. And then I was in it too deep, so I couldn't back out. (laughs) (laughs) And then I just uh, took the opportunity to, like I said before, try to minimize this gap and giving people a chance to see the modern farmer and also... Uh, the feminist side of the book. So three main courses. And, uh,
5: <laughs> yeah. and in terms of then the fight, so I hadn't heard about this case with the Buland energy plant, but could you explain then for people that are listening what the situation was and what happened? It started in 2010, right?
2: Uh, yeah, uh, around around that. Then it started to be this uh, company that wanted to build this power plant. Then they, they bought the right to research from another com- uh, company and started to really push it so the idea was older but uh, they, they didn't start to work on it until 2010 and because in Iceland normally if companies decide to do something like that they, they get through with it and it's always the obligation of the landowner to defend themselves if they don't want it so they usually just bought out even though they maybe don't don't like it at all. And so I was writing some articles and holding speeches and uh, forcing myself into the local politics and, and all that to try to try to do something ag- against this idea. And uh, yeah, that's what caught the interest of both Steyn for the book and also the Left Green political party in Iceland, which uh, contacted me and uh, asked me to be a uh, part of the of their party for the elections 2016 and then it was election again 2017. So it it's like a, a ball rolling <laughs> and uh, more and more attention drawn to the cause and that's a good thing. And you, you say in the book that, well you start
5: off by saying that you don't much like politicians, particularly when you were going into, into this and considering the idea of going into politics was daunting for you. And you also say that you're naturally introverted and that you have a bad temper <laughs> which maybe might not suit you to politics but it does actually seem that it it really did suit you in terms of this uh, situation actually being a person from outside of politics actually helped you in terms of getting support for for the cause
2: yeah the politics isn't really my my thing or at least it, it wasn't because uh it takes a lot of time, especially in the local politics, because you don't get paid for it. Uh, just a little, very little bit paid for it, and it takes a lot of time, lots of energy, lot of phone calls and emails and driving to meetings. And, of course, people got angry at you because you are <laughs> making some tough decisions and all that, so that wasn't appealing at all. But mm-hmm. uh, if you want something uh, like this to to happen if you want to have some influence and also if you need to stay informed of something like this power plant plans it's uh, basically the only thing you can do that's really effective that is to put yourself somewhere where you get the informations and you can have some influence so it was no choice actually just if i wanted to do my best i had to be there yeah (laughs) yeah
5: And as as a landowner, you're sort of consecutively a farmer and a politician, and you say at one point that it it actually leads to some frostiness with your neighbours, your neighbouring farmers, that because you have put your neck out and you've shared your opinion that you're against this, this power plant, it doesn't necessarily just earn you friends and allies. You had to convince... Some people around you that this was going to be a bad
2: idea for this power plant to move in. Uh, yes, it's a really when when this happens in Iceland, uh, uh, roads or power plants or something like that, it always tears up the communities. So just by being against it, and being so loudly against it, it both got me enemies, and I, I discovered who were with me also. And in a small, in a small community, it's hard driving your truck. Like, I had my truck for 16, 17 years or something. Everybody <laughs> know the car. And suddenly people will stop waving. Some would stop waving right. when, when, you, when you cross them on the road. Also in the local store, people would maybe chase me around and uh, ha- have me stopping by the cooler and telling me, whispering to me, oh, well done, you keep on. But they would never admit it openly that they would agree. Right. Because there are so many people that hesitate to say their opinion loudly. They don't want to be in a, that's a really popular phrase in Iceland, not to be against progress. So they don't like to admit that they're against something like a power plant or a new road or something. But they, in their heart they are against it. So they're really relieved when someone is stupid enough to go out there and <laughs> be loud. <laughs> but but there's also people that liked the idea. and Some of them were really angry because they were saying I was me and the people that are supporting me were stopping progress. Mm-hmm. And uh, the financial situation of the area of the community was bad at the time.
5: Well, you've had. I've heard that you've had people coming to check out your farm after the book because the book was the bestseller in Iceland so you had people coming to your farm is that quite weird to have people turning up to have a look around
2: no it's okay Uh, (laughs) it's it's okay okay. (laughs) and uh, of course I'm often just somewhere on the field working or not by the house but my mother has had a lot of visitors (laughs) most of them just stop by for a few minutes you know just want to look around and Mm. maybe say hello
5: tell us a little bit more about um, your farm so it's called Lyotestadio yeah so it's basically been farmland since the 11th or 12th century but how long has it been in your
2: family for? Uh, Not for so long. My grandparents moved there in 1952 Mm -hmm. and then it had been out of farming for for a few years. Uh, It it has in the earlier days it was uh, a hard place to farm because it's uh, so close to the highland so the summer is short and uh, if the weather conditions were bad, it was probably a, a hard place to farm and also the volcano Katla has uh, erupted through the centuries and then covered the, the area with ash and then it was out of farming maybe for a few years but it always someone always came back so it was out of farming for a few years in this period of time and then my grandparents came in '52. then my mother entered first husband, which was my uncle. They started farming around 1959. And then my uncle died in an accident and my father came to the story. So I have, like, uh, we were five sisters. Three of them had another father and uh, two of us have the same father, but they were brothers, so we all have the same family. So I'm, yeah, you can say I'm the third generation since 52. And that's not... Many farms in Iceland have been in the same family for centuries. And and
5: you sort of took over the farm when you were about 23. Yeah. And prior to that, you had done a stint as a model. You'd, you'd been doing some modeling. But you, you say in the book that when you went back to the farm, it was it was very natural. You knew that this is what you wanted to do with your life immediately.
2: Uh, yeah, I think I've always known it. Uh, I, I always plant on taking all the farm and i wanted it to rise i wanted it to be a, a better one and so the modeling was just it was fun mm. and and g- good to try it and good for self-esteem and everything but i, I knew all the time it, it was nothing i was going to do so it was just a, a, a short period of time
5: yeah
2: and your farm sounds beautiful and
5: you say that that The landscape is beautiful. And actually, if if anyone listening wants to go and look up photos, there've been sort of enough articles, I think, about you and your farm now that they can go and see pictures of the landscape. And it is remarkable. But you also talk about how hard you work. And, I mean, sheep shearing, for one, is an amazingly physical thing. And you're very good at it. But then also days where you work so hard that you start hallucinating and, you know, four hours sleep and then you're back out there Building something or out with the sheep, is it something that you enjoy? Do you ever have time away from the farming life? Is sort of politics a bit of a break for
2: you? Uh, yeah, this kind of work is something that I used to do for first years of farming. Uh, you know how you you remember being twenty, two, three? The energy is endless. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that that's just uh, some period of time, and then. You learn to not behaving like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now it's only in some like lambing season or, or or some, like you were describing this, this four hours of sleep. That was when I was plowing and putting down the seeds for the summer. So it's, uh, I can do it for a short period of time but I no longer work until I elusiate I like before. <laughs> That's good to hear. I, yeah, I, I know better now. <laughs> and but and I also learned through the years that uh, it's really important to take days off mm. and travel a, a bit or play. Like uh, I have snowmobile and uh, a kayak and I uh, also like hiking. So your life really is
5: very connected to the landscape then everything that you, you do in your day-to-day is shaped by the environment
2: Yes, yes, really much uh, I'm, I'm a I'm a part of the nature I, I, w- I would like to say that I'm a part of the nature I'm not above it in any way uh, yeah,
5: yeah, I think there's a line in the book you say, I don't own the land, the land owns me yeah,
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's a big it's a huge responsibility to be owned by all this land <laughs> 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 uh, to to make sure that you give it back to the next generation mm. in the, uh, at least not worse condition than you were lucky enough to have it. So respect the nature and respect the land.
3: So, Sean, are you going to leave London and take to the hills?
2: Well, we did speak about how
5: tall Hyder is, but Hyder is literally six foot tall, and to put this mildly built, and I am five foot four and a little bit pudgy, so I don't think, I'm, ma- strength, I don't think
4: I'm made for... I have to butt in there and say that if you're six foot tall and built, you also don't want to head for the hills
5: necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm made for farming. I think I'll stay at the Guardian, but thanks.
3: Hyder, a shepherd at the end of the world by Steinun Sigurda.ir, is published by John Murray, while Sinead Gleason's Constellations is published by Picador. Thanks to her and also to Haider. Next week, we hear from Brett Easton Ellis, who turns his attention to non-fiction with a collection of angry responses to contemporary culture, white.
5: And as always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts.
3: But for now from me Richard Lee,
5: me Claire Armistead, and me Sean Kane.
3: And our producer, Susanna Tresillion, thanks for listening and goodbye.
0: For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.